Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. We have been trained up in our culture now that whenever there's some societal thing that we don't like, There should be a law. There should be a law. Well, most of the time, that's actually the worst solution instead of the the best solution. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Yo, 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 Lionos, what up? You guys know who Lion-O is? Thundercats? No? Anybody? Come on, people. 80s classic cartoon reference. Get with the program. Welcome back to Monday's program here at Lions of Liberty, where I, Mark Clare, host interviews like the amazing one you're going to hear today, if I do say so myself, as well as occasional roundtables in the form of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. We actually got uh, treated to a special electric libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor on the last episode of Electric Liberty Land, because of course, it is not just me here at the Lions of Liberty podcast every single Monday. It is also my good friend, Brian McWilliams, bringing his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty to the Lions of Liberty podcast feed every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land, while my buddy John Odie Odermatt wraps things up every Friday with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. These guys are killing it. I hope you think I'm killing it too because you keep coming back. Unless it's your first time, then be sure to hit that subscribe button because you don't want to miss any of that great stuff coming here on this podcast feed. This is the 343rd episode of the Monday flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, which means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 343. Without further ado, let's roar, shall we? All right, my guest today is the owner of Polyface Farms in Swope, Virginia. He is also the author of a dozen books on farming-related issues. He was featured in the book Omnivore's Dilemma, as well as the film Food, Inc. He refers to himself as a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic, farmer. I am so pleased to welcome Mr. Joel Salatin. Joel, are you ready to roar? Roar! Let's go! All right. Now, that's one of my better roars I've ever gotten, Joel. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. (laughs) And and now, Joel, since this is a libertarian podcast, we'll uh, we'll kind of start off focusing with that part of your your self-description there. So why don't you start off telling us a bit about yourself, how you developed first a passion for farming, and when did you begin to consider yourself a libertarian? Yeah, well, my passion for farming is from as basically as old as I can remember. I had chickens when I was 10 years old, and I just, I just, you know, from a little child, I, I wanted to farm. And so I, you know, we always milked a couple Guernsey cows. I, I grew up selling at a, at a curb market here. And, uh, at that time, if you joined 4-H, which I did, then the, 
the government food inspection officials had an agreement with the extension service, which was the educational arm of the kind of ag system. And what is 4-H, by the way, just, just to, for people that don't know that? 4-H, it's the, it's the number one youth leadership organization in the world. Head, heart, hands, and health is what the 4-H's stand for. Head, heart, hands, and health. And uh, it was, you know, it was started back in, the, I don't know, what, 1920s or 30s or something as a way to involve, uh, especially, I mean, it was started as a way to involve you know, farm kids in, you know, animal competitions and public speaking and, and you know, all sorts of, of youth leadership kind of things for the rural sector. It's now, of course, uh, much more expansive in the, as the motto says now, it's more than plows, cows, and sows. But anyway, the thing that, that's important to understand is that at that time, because of this kind of memorandum of understanding between these two government agencies, we were able to sell, I was able to sell eggs and chicken, even cooked chicken. I'd, I'd pick it off. We could sell, we could, we could field dress. We out here in the pasture, we could, you know, shoot a steer and dress it out in, in, on the farm here and sell, you know, round steaks and, and ground beef. Same with chicken. I mean, and pork. And, and we milked these couple Guernsey cows. We could sell, you know, buttermilk and cottage cheese and uh, yogurt and, all sorts of things. Getting me hungry, Joel. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so I, I grew up as a teen. You're doing this. This is in the in the seventies. All right. In the from six, sixty-eight to seventy-five. Okay. And, and I'm doing this every Saturday. I'm getting up at you know four in the morning and going down to the curb market. It was a it was a precursor to today's farmers market. Okay. Right. All right. So I'm sitting here thinking, all right, how can I get back to this farm full time? How can I do this thing? And it dawned on me. You know what? I could hand milk ten cows sell the milk to the neighbors because most of my customers were here in the neighborhood. You know, I had a bicycle and I, you know, I had my route. I supplied a couple schools and people in the neighborhood, people at church, that sort of thing. And I said, you know, I could milk, I could milk 10 cows. I could sell the milk at supermarket prices. You know, this is before the craze of, you know, organic and grass finished and all that. Now we were organic and we were grass based, but that wasn't the deal. The deal was it was clean, good, local stuff. And I said, we could sell this at supermarket prices to the neighbors, and I could make a nice living with 10 cows. There was only one problem. It was illegal. And I have never gotten over it, that the fact that we had a willing farmer, a willing entrepreneur, willing customers, everybody was happy except among these voluntary consenting adults, there was a bureaucrat in between. And that kept me from being able to get back to the farm for a number of years. And, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't dwell on it every day. It's not like, you know, I, I think about it every day. But I have, never, I have never gotten over and forgotten the fact that the bureaucrat kept me off the farm. So is that what sort of started your thought process towards uh, taking on sort of a libertarian ethic when you see that, like you said, you've got a willing farmer doing the work and putting everything out there. You've got a willing customer. A consensual transaction is, is ready to form, yeah. and then here comes this, this other entity intervening in it. Right. Well, that certainly was a uh, – yes, that was certainly a catalyst in this, although, although I, I grew up – I mean, I, I got – I was libertarian from, you know, from birth. Uh, my dad was a was right. a subscriber to uh, you know freedom education whatever fee. I grew up on the free man. You know it's hilarious. I grew up on the free man 
and Mother Earth News. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's quite the cross section. Yeah, yeah, quite the cross section. So you know, here we were. Here we were. These you know these conservative Christians, and uh, you know our Christian friends were you know pretty straight laced and, and and all this, and and but our farm friends were all hippies, and uh, you know I smelled plenty of marijuana growing up, and and <laughs> I mean, you know because our church friends thought that you know health food and compost piles and all this was was like throwback. You know that that that's not. We want to go. We want to be scientific here, and I don't want to get an argument about organic or inorganic or whatever. I'm just trying to explain how broad-based and eclectic my, you know, my youth, my growing up was around our home with with such a, you know, uh, an interesting thing. And my dad, my dad was was quite libertarian, and in fact did a radio, uh, a weekly radio program for a couple of years. In fact, he wrote so many letters to the editor that the uh, newspaper changed its policy and said, you know, we're only going to accept a letter a month per person. And so, <laughs> so, so they had to create a new rule just yeah, for okay, him. Okay. So dad had a couple of friends. He said, Hey, if I write letters, will you sign them? They said, sure. So he, he kept cranking out all of his letters just with different <laughs> signatures. <laughs> so, so, figuring out ways around the, around the system just pretty much comes naturally for us. It's pretty much uh, ingrained in your blood, huh? Yeah. So I wonder if you can speak on sort of your philosophy when it comes to farming and how that ties in with uh, the rest of the sort of uh, beliefs you lay out in your self-description. Uh, uh, the Christian, the libertarian, the capitalist, the environmentalist, and of course, we don't want to forget that you're a lunatic. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> All those uh, descriptions are because I find assets and liabilities in every one of them. I mean, uh, my, my Christian friends, you know, I'm I am a I am a Christian, uh, uh, you know, from a belief standpoint. But I'm frustrated with the faith community because essentially it it takes I would say an over dominion uh, situation and basically says, well, let's eat let's eat junk so we got money to put in the missionary barrel. We'll we'll send all our soil down to Mississippi. But as long as, as long as, um, you know, we can eat today and put money in the missionary barrel, everything's fine. And I don't see that as a very good, you know, return on God's equity. The environmentalist, so, so the libertarian part, uh, yes, I, I'm very much a small governmenter. I, I don't see very many solutions coming out of the federal government. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the 50 state, you know, the 50 state experiment that essentially we have arrogated, we have arrogated almost everything that was supposed to be done at the local or state level to the federal level. And that's why we have so much acrimonious debate in the country now is because the stakes are too high. You can't have, you can't have little, little discussions. All the discussions are massive because it's a federal one size fits all. Whereas if you had, you know, from, from, from whatever, <laughs> name your thing, public education, to gay marriage, to, to uh, public school, to education, to medical care, to what, if, if all of this were not at the federal level, then you could have everything from a state that says education is not the government's responsibility to a state that says every single person needs to be publicly educated with the taxpayer's dollar, uh, no matter what. And so anyway, I think that the fact that we have now taken all these small arguments, small uh, discussions, and put them on a federal stage has created a very different platform in our country because it, it, it's the, the winner takes all. And it almost guarantees nobody's going to be happy because there's, right. especially with the cross-section of uh, beliefs and also the various areas that the federal government is involved in, yeah. uh, you know, th there's going to be arguments on every side constantly and you're never going to satisfy a whole country of people. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, when people say, 
well, we need to we need to get rid of these lobbyists. We need to you know get all this. You know, we've got the best government money can buy. I've got that book on the shelf. Well, you know, the the reason is because all of our liberties are for sale. And if you, if all of our liberties, you know, if you didn't have to get a permit to spit, we wouldn't have all the lobbyists in D.C. But the fact that that the the, the federal uh, level permeates every facet of of our lives now means that that all of our rights, all of our freedoms, are basically for sale. And that's why K Street exists. All right. Then we move on down line to. So I, I deeply appreciate the the small government, but the, but the problem with the libertarian, you know, the, the the liability with the libertarian is that they they take the individual right to the the exclusion of the commons. And I don't hear very many libertarians talking about the commons. And yet the fact the fact air, soil, and water these are resources that we didn't put here, and and they're they're not just mine. Even though the courthouse says, you know, I own this little parcel, a lot of people had an effect on it before I came. A lot of people are going to have an effect on it after I go. And so I'm, I'm a, I appreciate the tension between the individual and and the commons. So so then the environmental, all right. So so then I have this this great environmental ethic. The problem with the environmental, so so I I, I appreciate ecological, you know, care and, and, and caressing the landscape and all the, the wonderful little warm, fuzzy words that I say, the tension there is that the, the mainline radical environmentalist agenda is extremely anti-business. It's anti-use. It's, it's anti, it's, it's anti-innovation, personal, you know, personal ability to, to do things. And it's a, it's a very decidedly anti-business kind of, kind of approach. And so, so, so finally, the lunatic is simply to, to enjoy, you know, the, the fact that, you know, my, my orthodox farm neighbors call, you know, call me a bioterrorist because I'm so negligent. I don't vaccinate my cows and all this stuff. And so, of course, I'm going to be sick because we all know wellness comes out of a bottle or a syringe. And, you know, we, we just don't do what everybody else does. And so we can either be depressed about that. Or we can just smile and say, yeah, yeah, we're the lunatic fringe. You know, and there are books written about, you know, the outliers. Malcolm Gladwell's wrote, written business books about, you know, how innovation comes from the outliers. So it's just our way to, to have fun with something that most people would be very frustrated about. Yeah, you are definitely a, a controversial figure within the farming community. Like you said, you've been called a bioterrorist. I've seen that you've been called a typhoid Mary, a charlatan, a starvation advocate. Uh, yeah. Those things sound pretty bad, but uh, yeah. you know. So, what what is it about your methods of farming that just really don't jive with with a lot of the people in in that industry? Well, you have to understand that the the par- the worldview, the worldview of right now of American Orthodox agriculture, the food system, is First of all, that that food and food is fundamentally a mechanical thing. It's not a biological thing, and and that animals are are just you know piles of protoplasmic structure to be manipulated, however cleverly hubris can imagine to manipulate them. And so, when you take a very mechanical view toward life, it's an extremely disrespectful, dishonoring, and manipulative standpoint. And I would say that if a if a culture refuses to ask how to make pigs happier rather than just how to grow them faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper, then we will view citizens and even other cultures from that through that same that same filter of just 
you know, manipulative disrespect that there's no, there's no sanctity to the pigness of the pig. And if there's no sanctity, if, if there's no specialness to the pigness of the pig, then there's no specialness to the Thomas of Tom, the Mariness of Mary or anything else. It's a really interesting way to look at that. I hadn't really thought of it in, in quite that way, but it's a good point. I mean, if we're treating all biological life like they're just cogs in the machine, we're only a step away from treating humans the same way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, for, for example, the kind of uh, tension, I'll just bring up a point like, like genetically modified organisms, okay? I don't, I don't believe in GMOs. Most libertarians think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so, so there's this tension. So let, let me throw this. Uh, out. And, and so, so I have gotten castigated by all my, you know, environmental friends that I don't want to ban GMOs. All right. And of course, my libertarian friends, you know, think that I'm opposed to individual innovation because I don't like uh, GMOs. Here's my answer to that tension. My answer is I'm okay with GMOs, but you can't trespass with GMOs. The problem is what we've got here is a technology that is inherently promiscuous. I mean, that's how it works, right? I mean, it, it, it goes out and it's, it's, it's supposed to be promiscuous, and it doesn't know boundaries. And so what happens is here I'm going along on my farm, and suddenly GMOs drift over from the neighbor and give me completely different life forms than I have on my farm or want on my farm. Now, if, right. if, you're, if your bull came over and came over and, and trumped on my uh, flower bed, I could call a district uh, a magistrate and get a warrant out for you to, to pay me compensation for messing up my flower bed by your bull. But in, with the GMOs, what we've got is, is incredible trespass onto private property by new beings, new life forms that I don't want on my property. And not only will the magistrate not sue out a, a, uh, a trespass a warrant for you, but the, our courts are ruling that I have to pay you a royalty. I have to pay you for the privilege of your beings coming over and messing up my property. Wow, that's crazy. And so, so I think we can have it both ways. I think we can have the problem. The problem is that the folks who don't want GMOs have 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 you know the environmentalists. They have basically a non-property rights appreciation. So they want to they solve it with, with legislation that just makes it illegal. And the libertarians, they, in this, in this argument, in my opinion, the libertarians, who tend to be fairly aggressive about defending property rights, are quite hypocritical in not appreciating that if I don't want your GMO material on my property, that's something that a, that a libertarian should take very seriously. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know which libertarians you're hearing from because there are certainly people with all, all sorts of different views. For, from my viewpoint, your approach is the libertarian approach. You know, that, that's the approach that allows people to do what they want right. uh, with their own property. But once you invade someone else's property and start affecting their life, well, now you've got to enforce the property rights of that person. In this yeah. case, the person being invaded by these, uh, these I guess, life forms, as, as you would refer to these GMOs that now affect your crop. And that's, that's completely, I know the movie Food Inc. goes into this quite a bit, this idea that 
but when GMOs drift over, certain grains drift over, obviously you can speak on this in a more detailed way, you actually somehow become legally responsible for that, and that, that's just insane. I mean, I think uh, part of this is Monsanto and some of these major companies, while the technology itself may be very beneficial in some ways, it should be adopted on a voluntary basis, and it seems to be uh, a point now where the federal government is acting as the agent of Monsanto. They're acting as the uh, sort of the catalyst to get this, this product everywhere, including on farms where they don't want it. Yeah, yeah. So the point here, my point here is that we don't, we don't need laws, we don't need legislation about this. We just need to enforce basic, you know, Magna Carta, <laughs> we just uh, basic old uh, English common law trespass, right. and we're good to go. This this is my problem with all my friends that want to, you know, we want to, we need a law about this. Man, I, I tell I tell these guys, look, if your first antidote for a societal problem is a law, that is the most disempowering solution that you can imagine. That should be the the, the place of last resort. And, but but we have been we have been trained up in our culture now that whenever there's some societal thing that we don't like, there should be a law. There should be a law. Well, most of the time, that's the that's actually the worst solution instead of the instead of the best solution. My name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a Libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, nonviolent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. Can you speak to um, like how, how your farming methods uh, differentiate f- themselves from uh, what we commonly see or we commonly think of now, uh, really thanks to films like Food, Inc., that really displayed uh, a lot of the, I guess, I don't know if inhumanity is the right word when we're talking about animals, but uh, just the sort of the, the factory farming that we see and the, the mass production of animals, of crops. How do you differentiate yourself uh, through your farming from those methods? And what do you see as, as the biggest issues with uh, sort of, I guess, the the conventional food production methods. Right. Well, first of all, our animals are not confined in in big structures during the during the season for nine months of the year. Now, you know, when there's three feet of snow, then it's a little different story. We we put shelter, put them in shelter, but otherwise they're on pasture. So so we're moving them. So all so the infrastructure is all portable. And so instead of having a big chicken house, what we have are a hundred and fifty 10 foot by 12 foot, two foot tall shelters that, that we have 75 chickens in a piece and we move them every day to a fresh salad bar. So that keeps the chickens healthy. It lets them eat green material, which changes the, you know, the, the, the fat profile, the omega three, omega six. It's completely changes the nutritional profile. 
And so you have a, you know, you have a, a totally different system. We don't have to spread any manure. The chickens spread the manure and, and, and all the fields are used by chickens, turkeys, rabbits. And so you're, you're stacking, you're stacking additional enterprises instead of just being a, a single production model. Different animals use the same field at different times of the year. And that creates a very, a very synergistic and a very sanitary and hygienic system as opposed to a single species where you have, you know, hosts all the time and, and increased pathogenicity because it's, it's easy for pathogens to proliferate. Now, from a fertility standpoint, this is a biggie. So we have, we have a, a big industrial chipper here. And uh, so we chip, we chip, we do a lot of work in the forest. And so mainline agriculture is highly segregated. So it, it's mechanically it's mechanically oriented, it is confinement oriented, and it is segregation oriented. I.e., dairy farm, beef farm, uh, apple farm. You know, d- denoted by single commodities, and it's and they're also segregated from their fertility. So you you know you get your petroleum based uh, fertilizer and truck it to your farm, and you put it on, and then you sell your commodity somewhere else. Rather, we look at nature and say, well, how does nature fertilize? And we see nature doesn't move carbon around very much. Nature kind of, kind of, you know, keeps carbon near where it is. The trees, the leaves fall where they, you know, where the, from near where the tree went and uh, the grass, you know, falls over near where it grew and uh, animals poop near where they ate, you know, <laughs> not a whole lot of movement. And so we have a highly integrated system where we view, we view the forest as part of a biomass sink, so we go out and we cut diseased and crooked and, and, and you know, uh, poor quality trees to upgrade, basically weed the woodlot and use that biomass for large-scale composting, and that becomes the guts of our, of our fertility program. And so, for example, right now in the U.S., we're spending, what, four or five billion dollars a year fighting forest fires. If, and the reason that we're having all those fires is because we have a no-cut policy. We have wilderness areas. We have we have all sorts of you know no-cut, no-logging policies all over the country, and the result is that we have this huge buildup of old, aged, dead biomass. And if we would convert that into carbon for composting and link that up with livestock to get the synergism between the manure and the carbon, the nitrogen and the carbon. We could literally have more fertility than we have without buying a single bag of chemical fertilizer. And imagine what that would do to rural entrepreneurial vocations to be able to create entire community-based carbon-centric programs to actually integrate the biomass in the forest to open land fertility, whether it's grass or corn or whatever, and, you know, right now in a country where, you know, we're desperate for what to do with, you know, with, with people with the blue collar crowd, you know, as everything goes to artificial intelligence and robotics and everything else, you know, basically the, the, the blue collar is getting left behind. And there's 40% of the population, according to business gurus, 40% of the population that doesn't want to sit at the end of a Dilbert Expressway, uh, punching numbers into cyberspace for a Fortune 500 company every day. There are people that actually like to do craft work, have, you know, calluses on their hands and, and dirt under their fingernails. How do we ensure that these folks get validated, affirmed, uh, that their personhood gets, gets, 
you know, validated or, or you know, credible within the, within the culture. And I would suggest that having a, an integrated carbon-centric approach in our farm systems is one way of creating sacred, noble vocations for people who actually want to work outside and participate viscerally in our ecological umbilical. It sounds very much like what you try to do is, is recreate as, as much as possible the natural environment of animals and these organisms and how they interact without human intervention with, of course, some slight human intervention on your part. And that, that seems so diametrically opposed to uh, how much of our farming uh, has developed in this country, the, the factory farming that, that the film Food Inc. focuses so much on. Uh, I'm curious, how much does government intervention play a part in how factory farms have, has, have developed and how has that made life more difficult for smaller farmers like yourself who are trying to do things in sort of a, a more natural way? Yeah, well, it's a wonderful question. And uh, it's, you know, there's so many ways to... <laughs> ways yeah, I mean, we could probably do a seven-hour show yeah, on this, yeah, but we, we, we you know, could, what's one or two that yeah, might but, stand but out? Let me, let, me give, let me give you just a couple of things. One is that the, the food safety laws have essentially precluded market access for small farmers, small entrepreneurs. So when you have a plethora of compliances and regulations and infrastructure requirements so that in order to sell, you know, one shepherd's pie to a neighbor, you need a $500,000 worth of infrastructure and compliance forms. Suddenly, the size of that embryonic entrepreneurial prototype business has to be so big that it cannot be birthed. You know, the reason that babies are small is because you can't birth a big baby. And what's happened with this uh, size, scale, prejudicial, interventive regulatory structure that we have now is that, that the, foodscape, the foodscape embryos, the innovator entrepreneurs that are bringing solutions to, uh, you know, to our, our food space cannot launch small. The reason that the U.S. dominates the world in the electronic sphere, you know, the internet and, and Craigslist and e-commerce and all this, is because that's essentially been a Wild West that developed faster than the regulatory structure could deal with it. And, and, and so, so since food is one of the first things that got regulated with the Food Safety Inspection Service in 1908 under uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt'ski, the socialist Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> since food has been regulated almost longer than anything else in the culture, it stands to reason that food would suffer most from this tyrannical, you know, over, you know, over whatever regulation uh, that, that's been growing and growing. You know, they never, they never take a regulation away. Uh, they, they just keep adding. And so, so if, if a person like me could milk 10 cows and sell it at regular supermarket prices to neighbors, then suddenly the big guys would have, True competition, and true competition would either make them have to do better, or what it would probably do is keep them from growing so large. When everybody's all excited about, oh, how big this stuff gets, how big these, you know, Tyson and all this stuff gets. The only reason they're so big is because it's so difficult. It's so difficult to compete with them on, on a small scale, and any regulation that is prejudicial against scale is a bad regulation. So somebody says, well, so give me a regulation that doesn't prejudice against scale. All right, speed limit. 
That's a good one. It doesn't take any more effort to, to put the brakes on a tractor trailer than it does a, um, you know, a Prius. Okay. So that, that's what, where, where scale, it doesn't have, it, it's equally, equally applied and it doesn't cost any more to comply one to the other. But when it comes to these, to, to most regulations, you know, whether it's uh, running a daycare center or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, making charcuterie or uh, making cheese in your home or, or whatever, you know, butchering chickens, whatever it is, when it comes to food, virtually all regulations are highly scaled prejudicial. So it's much di- more difficult to get in small than, you know, than get in large. Right. So these huge factory farms and they can deal with all sorts of regulations that come their way. Uh, they're scaled up. They've got teams of lawyers. They've got everything they need to deal with a large uh, regulatory federal government. Whereas smaller farmers like yourself have a, have a much bigger uphill battle when dealing with this kind of thing. And I can't even imagine someone who doesn't have a farm yet, who might just dream of being a farmer <laughs> and looking at the, the massive bureaucracies that are, that are basically have guns aimed at them from the get go. And I can't imagine how many farmers just never even start because of that. Well, that's that's the tragedy of what I'm describing. I mean, I can give you an example just uh 3 years 2 years ago we had a we had a gal here, she was a Culinary Institute of America grad. She wanted to start an entrepreneurial business doing meat pies, uh turning our beef and pork and chicken into meat pies for the local for the community, for the for the market. We you know, we've got we've got thousands of families wanting this. Yes, we want please bring this on. Leah is ready to that was her name. Uh, ready to ready to launch the business. We're all good. We've got we've got the meat. We've got the pork. We we got everything right here, ready to go. So the thing is, it has to be done in an inspected kitchen. So health department comes out, looks at our kitchen. Uh, we have a really nice one here on the farm that we we use for for feeding our crew. And oh man, so this is wonderful. It's just great. And and so I thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. And as he leaves, he says, well, where's your bathroom? I said, well, well. Our house is 150 yards away. We've got two. Mom's is 150 yards away. She's got two. Daniel, our son, and his wife live 200 yards away up on the hill right there, and they've got two bathrooms. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of bathrooms. Oh, no, no, no. You've got to have an attached bathroom. I said, well, you mean attached like, uh, I mean, we've got we've got the porta potties over here that all of our visitors use. No, no, no. It has to be porcelain, water-based, licensed, <laughs> you know. And so suddenly we're faced with a $30,000 requirement in order to crank out one $5 pot pie to sell to a neighbor. And so, so then, so then I got to thinking about that. I said, no, wait a minute. You know, a food truck doesn't have attached bathrooms. He said, no, and that's a loophole we need to close. I said, wait a minute. (laughs) You're like, that wasn't my point. (laughs) Yeah. No, I said, wait a minute. What you're telling me though, is that right now, if we took this kitchen off of its foundation and put it on a chassis, we could do a meat pie without a bathroom. He said, absolutely. I said, could you please tell me, any reason why I should think that that makes any sense? He said, "No, it doesn't." But that, but you know, that's 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 the rule. And so those kinds, so we don't we don't do meat pies. So you know, the tragedy of it is not that okay. So we we can't do meat pies, and Leah can't start her business. That that's tragic enough. The worst tragedy is that the average person, the average buyer in the U.S., is denied choice in the marketplace. You know, you, you, when you go in the supermarket and look at all those, you know, bright packages of things, they're really just reconfigurations of corn and soybeans. There's not a lot of of, of choice there. And so to, to imagine what local artisanal charcuterie and cheese making and, and, and 
baking and pot pies and, and all the kinds of, you know, dairy and all the kind of things that we could do that would allow people to have choice if we had a, you know, I'm promoting a an amendment to the Constitution like the, you know, the Second Amendment to the right to bear arms, that, that we have one that gives every citizen the right to the food of their choice from the source of their choice. And if every citizen could ha- had the right to acquire the food of their choice from the source of their choice, it would absolutely crumple. It would absolutely crumple within within a year or two. It would completely crumple the great big, you know, the big food food empires that we've grown to hate li- lately, and that have no transparency, that are very opaque, and that that every time there's a there's a food recall or a problem. The first thing they do is hide behind the skirts of the government bureaucrats. We've complied with every requirement. Here's our paperwork, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and there's, there's no personal responsibility because they can always hide behind the skirts of the bureaucracy. Yeah. Meanwhile, Joe, Joel Salatin poisons someone, heaven forbid, somehow with a product, and uh, you're, you're going down, or you're going to face a lot of a lot of backlash in the market, and that's that's how it should be, ultimately. I mean, the performance and uh, what you actually serve to your customers and the effects of that, that's how everybody should be judged. But uh, like you're pointing out, when we have these giant factory farms that are so connected to the government, and all they have to do is fill out the right paperwork or build the right porcelain bathrooms, uh, there's no accountability then uh, from that point on. Uh, for the health of their food, for any of the, the negative impacts it might have, that is all off the table uh, due to these these excessive government regulations. That is exactly correct. Uh, I mean, ultimately, the regulatory bureaucracy becomes essentially a liability protector for everybody who plays that game, and it becomes an inhibitor of access to anyone who either wants to join or wants to play a different game. Well, Joel, I, I know you're uh, you're busy on the farm today, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, to speak to myself and, and my listeners today. Uh, before I let you go, do you have any sort of advice? We actually have a, a good number of listeners, a surprising number of listeners who are actually involved in farming. Do you have any sort of, uh, I guess, final words for uh, people like that who are, or even people that are just considering uh, getting into farming about how they could uh, best approach that, especially dealing with, um, like you have your entire life, all the excessive government regulations and, and like hoops you have to jump through to do that yeah well it's really at the risk of sounding like a like a some sort of a mercantile uh, uh guy you know i've written several books you know of a you can farm and your successful farm business addressing that but also everything i the book everything i want to do is illegal and it's you know it's war stories from the local food front it, it, it takes these kinds of stories and starts with the story but then shows how bad it is but also very hopeful things that, that you can do. You can make an end run around a lot of these things. And so I, I think that if we spent if we spent as much time creatively uh, non-complying as we do trying to crowdsource, crowdfund, and, and fill out paperwork to comply, many times we'd actually get way farther ahead of what we're trying to do, you know, just just being creative about non-compliance. And 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 there's there's lots of there's lots of uh, kind of guerrilla end runs, you know, around the around the system, and so, you know, I, I'm ac- I'm actually looking at uh, there's I've got several farmers that are kind of in our position, and we're we're struggling with all of these rules, and now with you know the Food Safety Modernization Act, known as FSMA, 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 that's coming down the pike. There's a whole nother list of 2,000 pages of of regulations, and they're they're still being sorted out as to 
what they all mean. There's more and more pressure on us to start private buying clubs, you know, essentially non-public means of exchange and just completely opting out of the entire, creating an entire alternate universe in the food system. And I I think we're going to see that kind of thing proliferate in, in the coming days. All right. Well, Joel, we'll certainly link to uh, all of your books and all of your work, as well as uh, Polyface Farms website over on the show notes for today's show. And I certainly encourage anyone in the uh, Swope, Virginia area to consider uh, checking out Polyface and consider maybe getting some of your food from there. Joel, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate uh, the perspective you bring here. And I wish you all the best of luck and uh, keep up the great work, man. And keep on roaring. I'm pretty sure you're going to keep on roaring from from what I hear from you. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. As long as I got breath, I'm going to roar. Yeah. All right, Joel. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. What a cool cat Joel Salatin is. This is a guy I've been wanting to talk to since I started this podcast. And I want to give a big shout out to Jason Carrier, uh, one of our $100 per month Lions of Liberty Pride members. Uh, He actually sponsors the Dale Kearns ad with his Pride donation uh, because people at that level actually get an ad on the show, which is just an insane deal. Uh, So I want to also give Jason a shout out for hooking me up with uh, Joel Salatin. Uh, Jason actually lives close by and actually gets some of his food from Polyface Farm. So that's pretty cool. And I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Many, many people have been requesting this guest for a long time. It might take me a while sometimes, but I always get around to fulfilling those requests or doing my damn bestest. So I will continue to do that. You can, of course, give suggestions for guests by joining our Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. This is totally free for anyone to join. We also have a secret group for Lions of Liberty Pride members where they they get to directly ask questions for some guests. Uh, But uh, as far as the public group, anybody can come on in. Just answer a very simple question about where you first found this show. I want to let you on there in there to join the conversation. I do say myself, it has probably become one of the best and most respectful libertarian groups on the internet. You won't find that much arguing or shouting. A lot of great debate, a lot of great conversations, but everyone really keeps it respectful, which I like to think reflects the kind of tone we try to take on this show. Gotta be honest, guys, this was pre-recorded way in advance, so I don't have many updates for you as far as the Lions of Liberty Pride go. I just hope it's continued to grow this entire time I've been traveling. Uh, let's just say we're at the uh, we're getting $5,000 a month now. How about that? No pressure. No pressure to live up to that at all, guys. But uh, last I checked, we were close, very close to $1,100 a month, which is very exciting. You guys that contribute with the Lions of Liberty Pride are what literally keep the show going in terms of equipment and hosting fees and that sort of thing. But you also enable us to do cool things like go to Pork Fest, which we'll be doing uh, towards the end of June here. So we're very excited about that. Very excited to be recording some podcasts live on the scene, including a League of Liberty podcast. We're going to do a live League of Liberty podcast with myself, Roger Paxson of the Lava Flow podcast, who is the one who is putting on Pork Fest this year, as well as Johnny Rocket Adams from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad and Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians. We are coming together live and in person for the very first time at Porkfest. So that's just another reason to try to head up to Porkfest as if Ben Swan, as if Backwards, as if Scott Horton, as if getting to hang out in the VIP tent with the Lions of Liberty weren't enough reasons to check it out and head up there. Be sure to go over to Porkfest.com and there is a very special code that Roger Paxton gave out. It is LIONS10. So don't forget to use that code if you're buying tickets for Porkfest, LIONS10. And of course, do not forget to tune in 
to this very same podcast feed this coming Wednesday when Brian McWilliams will be returned live and in person. Well, not live and in person. It'll still be uh, in the form of a pre-recorded podcast, but he will be back in the United States after his little trip to Japan. I'm sure tackling all of the latest news and ranting and raving away about all of it on Electric Liberty Land this coming Wednesday. And of course, as always, John Odermatt wraps up the week this Friday with another hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Launchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. 